Ms. Wolf. Yes, hi. Thanks for seeing me. I've read the book War and Geese that you submitted, and I'm afraid it does not meet our needs at this time. What's wrong with it? Well, we are a publisher of children's books. This is an 800-page novel about the impact of the Napoleonic Wars on domestic and political life in Tsarist Russia. But the Russians are ducks, and the French are bunnies, so... Those are bunnies? I thought they were dogs. Yeah, I can't draw bunnies for squat. Then why did you undertake a massive project that would require 238 separate bunny illustrations? Because they have to be bunnies, or else the story doesn't make any sense. Did you even read it? Unfortunately, yes. Kids will love this. The grand and glittering ballrooms counterpoised with the violent battles. Yes. No. Yes. No. You're acting really immature, you know. Please, Ms. Wolf, I have a busy schedule. I, I could change them to bees and ants if you want. <laughs> I'm sure you could. Don't leave me with nothing. I thought the duck named Nikolai was a... Um, serviceable character. Okay, all right. Well, I can build a whole different book around him. Um, set at the end of World War II and the development of the V-2 rocket, um, straddling the worlds of science and metaphysics, Gravity's Duck Bill. Yes, do think of us when you complete that one. Thank you. Thank you so much for your confidence in me. I know that I can write a book that doesn't patronize little kids, and that's what our show is about today. And now he had to rewrite the second half of his kid's book about Oscar Pistorius, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, and initially it was just a triumph over adversity story, but obviously it's gotten a lot darker. Uh, and that's one of the things we'll talk about today as we go along. Uh, it is Children's Book Week. We wanted to talk about children's literature. Uh, and so, I mean, that's we have to bite off li like a duck in a War and Peace adaptation. We have to nibble off little parts of that because really uh, that's too broad uh, a thing to, to talk about. So let me just tell you some of the areas that I hope we'll be able to get into. Uh, we also, by the way, do welcome your phone calls as we go along. Uh, you may have your own thoughts, either the book that uh, changed your life uh, or the book that changed your children's life uh, lives uh, and uh, or some other aspect of what we talk about. Uh, it's all the same phone number. That doesn't change. 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. You may tweet us. You may tweet us at WNPR Colin. Tweet is such a children's book kind of word when you think about it. So WNPR Colin uh, and Greg Hill, our tweet master, is waiting to tweet back at you. So uh, in just a little bit, you're going to meet Carly Lemire. Uh, she's a youth services librarian at the Blackstone Library in Brantford. Victoria Ford-Smith, she's an assistant professor of English at the University of Connecticut, uh, specializing in children's literature. But we thought we would sort of begin with the chickens and then work backward. No, begin with the eggs and work backwards towards the chickens. Yeah, I get this mixed up uh, all the time. I think that's what we're doing now. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, two authors of children's books, uh, about how a child, children's book comes into being. Uh, and there is no one single universal path for that. Uh, and we're going to talk about two you know, pretty different kinds of children's books. One of them is uh, by a name you know, Jeff Cohen, ace reporter uh, at WNPR and the author of Ava and Sadie and the Worst Haircut Ever, uh, currently working on his second book, Ava and Sadie and the Best Classroom Ever, uh, which is actually entirely about uh, French deconstructionist theory. Uh, and I feel like it's going to go over the head of kids, but... What do I know? Uh, and so joining us also is so, – so Jeff will tell you exactly how these books uh, are – so his books are coming into existence. Also with us is Stefan Pastis, the author-illustrator of Timmy Failure. Now look what you've done, the sequel to Timmy Failure, Mistakes Were Made. He's also the creator of the comic strip Pearls Before Swine. Uh, and um, I, for, I have to say, Stefan Pastis, I've been reading the Timmy Failure books 
and I don't really have an appropriate child to read them to or share them with, but I also really don't care because they're basically pitched at my uh, psychology and, and reading level. Uh, and there are lots of fun. They're extremely funny stories. So I'm going to have you and Jeff talk a little, little bit about this. But, um, you know, obviously, Stefan Pastus, you come to this through um, a, a unique – through a kind of a unique path, and that is already being a comic strip creator, you – already have a sense of how to illustrate a story. Is it just sort of a natural transition? Does every comic strip uh, creator think at some point, maybe I should do a children's book? You know, not until this genre came along, this Diary of a Wimpy Kid genre, for lack of a better word, these books that are part text, part drawing. Um, It's perfect for someone who does a comic strip because that's what you do all day. You write a little bit and you draw a little bit. So for me... um, you know that that was perfect. I mean, that's that's what I like to do. And and in conceiving of your your protagonist, Timmy Failure is you know I mean he's um, arrogant. He has this entirely inflated nation a notion of his own self worth. He's borderline sociopathic in certain ways. <laughs> um, and so you know it's, he he is a departure from maybe the kinds of protagonist that that uh, I read as a, as a little boy growing up in the 1820s or whenever it was that I was a little boy, uh, where, you know, the, the, the books tended to be about little boys that parents hope that their little boys or little girls uh, that parents hope that their little girls would be, which is to say good, whereas <laughs> Timmy really isn't very good in much of any way. So uh, how you about that I choice? Like? The reason... Yeah, the reason, I mean, my, my big thing is I like characters that have huge blind spots. So <laughs> I like characters who think they're one thing, but in reality, they're something else. So so my model was a character named Ignatius Riley in a book called The Confederacy of Dunces. Yes. That, that, to me, is the funniest book ever. And in TV, maybe somebody like um, the boss on the British version of The Office. Um, just giant blind spots. I, to me, that's funny. And when I was writing Timmy... I mean, my first concern was to make kids laugh. I figured if I can make them laugh, um, I could really kind of get them to um, be glued to the book a little bit better. And when you do a comic strip every day, you really have, you have this huge advantage, and that is you basically perform for a crowd every day. So you see what works and what doesn't. And when you do it for 12 years, you know the areas that work. And, uh, and even better, when you actually tour and you speak to kids directly and you show them the strips directly, you can, you can see what works. So in writing Timmy, I think that gave me a big, a big advantage. The, um, so as, a, as somebody who already draws, you also did not have to solve the problem of being – I think – I gather people are usually fixed up. Jeff's going to talk about this in a second, but that, that authors – children's authors are, are often kind of fixed up with their illustrators that the publisher will find uh, quite often in an illustrator that, uh, that the publisher thinks would go with this, with this text concept. Not a problem for you, right? I mean it was never contemplated that you would do anything other than illustrate your own book. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, uh, I could see the advantages of both ways. In my case, with the drawing, um, given that I do it, I can do it exactly like I want. Um, so it's, it's great. And then I don't have to split any of the money either. <laughs> um, yeah, and there's, there's probably also a, a, a literary criticism world for, word for this, which uh, one of our guests, uh, Victoria Ford Smith, could, could help me come up with. But, I mean, the illustrations in your book are putatively, anyway, 
uh, Timmy Feeler's illustrations. In other words, he, he sometimes will say, in fact, early on, he talks about his best friend who he doesn't even really like very much. And he's so annoyed with his best friend. He said, other than rather than say anything about him, I'm just going to draw a picture of my own face here. Um, so the, the, the illustrations that you do, they have to be sort of plausibly the illustrations that Timmy would do. Yeah. So, in fact, what I would do is my tendency sometimes was to draw a little too good. So what I would do is <laughs> I stopped sketching them. I would just draw straight with ink. So that way I would make mistakes. I would truly make mistakes. <laughs> and then when I scanned them into the computer to put in the book, I would not fix those mistakes. So that made it, that made it work better. All right. So, Jeff Cohen, I want you to join this conversation, too. We know you as uh, an East reporter here. Now we're getting to know you as a children's book author. I'm Uh, getting to know me as a children's book author. Exactly. You have to do that first, and then we'll start doing it, too. Um, And and so and this was really serendipity, right? This was not part of your master career plan to write a children's book. Explain how this happened. Sure. So, you know, this this is entirely serendipity. I had I had no plan to be a children's book author. I my older kid cut off my younger kid's hair. Uh, we freaked out, and then a few weeks later, we calmed down, and and then, like a good reporter, I sat my kids down. My wife wasn't there, and we were at the dinner table, and I interviewed them both with my public radio, you know, gear here. Actually, let's hear. We'll hear just a little snippet, as it were, of that interview. When did you realize that something had gone wrong? When I was finished, and I put the scissors back, and I looked at her, and I was like, "Uh oh, this is bad, 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 bad." Did Sadie told you to come downstairs and show us? Yeah, and I said. I got my hair cut, Mommy. Isn't it nice? And, and you got it. And Mama looked at it, and she said, <gasps> I heard yelling, Eva crying. Seed, Eva, what were you thinking? Why were you thinking to cut your hair? I was crying, and I said, Sadie cut my hair. And I told you not to. And what did you do with the hair? I hid it under the radiator. Did you think we were going to like it? No. No. I didn't know you were going to scream like that, though. <laughs> so if you want to hear the whole three-minute interview, assuming you're the last person in America who has not heard the three-minute interview, go to WNPR.org. We've got it up there for you. All right. Pick so, up the story from there. Well, yeah. So it went uh, – it, it had parked itself on a, on a public radio sharing website called PRX, which is a great website. And it was there for a couple months. It didn't do anything. And then it just sort of bounced around the Internet. And long long story of it is that it eventually ended up on Gawker. Uh, and then went crazy for like a week. And then a week later, I got a call from um, a very nice woman at HarperCollins Children's Books who said, we'd love to turn this. What would you think if we if we were to, you know, and you turn this into a 32-page children's picture book? And I, I said, I don't know. I said, I'd have to, I'll have to talk to my wife. Uh, and so we had, you know, we talked about it. And then come early next week, suddenly I was entering the world of, you know, children's book writing. And your children were entering the world of, you know, being Christopher Robin, basically, a little, uh, bearing the massive psychological burdens uh, of being the subject of, of wildly popular children's books. They have gone back and forth on whether or not they like this entire thing entirely. And, and they, they happen to like it now because it's getting closer to the release. But I will say, you know, one thing that um, that I have in common with, the, with, the, with your first uh, caller, with, your, with, with the author of Timmy Failure, is that – uh, one thing that I do is I, I write every day professionally, but I don't write children's books. But writing every day is a similar thing. That you know, writing as a, in newspapers and writing for radio, um, I think might have made it 
a slightly different beast for me since I could, I, I, at least in theory, I'm I'm trained in brevity and getting ideas across. So it was an interesting thing to transfer the skill from news to children's book writing. You know, another thing that these books have in common, maybe I can pull uh, our other guests in here. Um, you know, I, I'm going to start with you, Victoria Ford-Smith. Um, in each case, this is these are the stories of things going not as they should. Uh, I mean, Timmy Failure's name pretty much says it all. Uh, and I mean, and he's <laughs> he's this grandiose sociopathic kid who doesn't you know, study for his tests and, and writes preposterous answers uh, instead. And it does all kinds of, of things. And obviously, you don't want your kids upstairs giving each other haircuts. Uh, that's not great either. But that's sort of a transition that children's literature, I think, made from, you know, from Lad of Sunnybrook and, and stuff like that to to this world where, you know, stuff comically doesn't really go the way it's supposed to. I don't, is, is there a demarcation point where all that ha- starts to happen? Um, I don't think there's a, a definite moment when that happens. It does remind me of really early children's literature where there were these type characters that were the good little girl and the bad little girl, um, and they often had names like Timmy Failure. So there, <laughs> there's a character like Goody Two-Shoes, which is one of the earliest children's books, um, but, of course, the case then is, like you said, you're supposed to admire Goody Two-Shoes and want to be her. Mm. Uh, but I think that the turn toward wanting to represent kids who are misbehaving in funny ways or, or in ways that we laugh at or enjoy reading about, uh, that's this new kind of absorption of the child's point of view into children's literature that is a little more modern, a little more 20th century. Um, Carly uh, Lemire, you as a youth services librarian, you're quite aware of Stefan Pastis's uh, To Me Failure books. And so... Uh, Talk a little bit about how what what audience they connect with and what what literary need that they meet. Uh, children love it. They cra- they crave the humor found in these books and lots of other books like Dan Gutman's books. Um, and I feel like it's something that they can easily relate to. Things happen day in day out that you are unexpected or maybe you get in trouble. And you also kind of learn maybe that's something I don't want to do through their mistakes as well. Yeah, and I, I think also, I mean, uh, Stefan Pastis, reading your book, I was thinking if uh, when I was a kid, this was the kind of book I wished existed because it didn't insult my intelligence. I mean, the vocabulary at times is even is adult, right? I mean, Timmy uses words like credibility. He'll say, I'm thinking about your credibility here. Um, and I'm not right. sure that you've actually picked uh, an age target audience here, but I, for example, I grew up reading the Booth Talkington Pen- Penrod books, which were actually written for adults, and then it turned out children really liked them a lot. Um, and, and I liked them because they didn't insult my intelligence. I'm assuming, first of all, do you have an age in mind for these particular books? Well, I mean, if you ask the publisher, they would say ages 7 to 12. But, but when I write, I don't write that way. I mean, if you think about it, you know, Bugs Bunny was meant for adults. Uh, Wimpy Kid was written, that first book, Jeff wrote, wrote for adults. Um, when I wrote Timmy, I wrote it to make myself laugh, and I'm 46. Um, it just so happens what I find funny is what an 11-year-old might find funny. So um, I, I would fear writing for kids because I think your tendency would be to write down. Um, and kids are much more sophisticated than you'd think. So if I write to make myself a 46-year-old laugh, um, then I'm not writing down to them. I, I don't do it on purpose. That's just how I... I write. I mean, the only restriction I put on myself, you know, was no smoking, no drinking, no <laughs> swearing. Uh, but other than that, I just wrote what made me laugh. And yeah, kids are way more sophisticated when you think. All you know, I did this huge long book tour where I went to forty, fifty schools, 
And uh, when I throw out to the kids and I say, hey, what should the fourth book be about? The suggestions they come up with are way darker, way darker than you think a nine or ten year old would ever come up with. So they're way, way past you. <laughs> and so, so I think if you try to write for them, you'll miss them. Yeah, and and we should say that Timmy's, you know, his although uh, the book is very fanciful and very funny, uh, and I mean Timmy has things like a business partner who's a polar bear who's a completely hapless polar bear who's afraid of birds. and um, But also, you know, he's living only with his mom uh, and his mom's out of work. Uh, and I don't know whether his uh, aunt has actual dementia or she's just a very peculiar person. But uh, I mean, there's like stuff going on in his life that's a little bit unsettling, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's a real story under Timmy. I mean, in the first book as well. I mean, they don't have much money. His mom sort of bounces from job to job. They they uh, get kicked out of their home. They're in an apartment. Um, so, but Timmy lives in his head. That's sort of his escape. So the the real life stuff is very sparse in between. But um, but yeah, I like to layer that. Comedy should be layered on some heavy topic. Sort of sit on top of it. It makes the comedy better, if you ask me. So um, I, I like to do it that way. Um, Jeff Cohen, uh, as you sat down to write this, this is a different writing challenge than you have faced uh, in, in in your life as a journalist. Um, on the other hand, you talk to two little girls every single day. So was it relatively easy to sort of organize the language and thoughts uh, in such a way as to make it palatable as children's literature? Well, it was a learning process, certainly. I mean, on, on the first instance, yeah, because the story, they had laid the story out for me. So mm-hmm. I, I had a structure, so I thought, and I wrote it, and it, uh, and when I wrote it and then I showed it to my editor, we had, went back and forth, and things we changed, things that I learned as a, as a not-children's book writer. Uh, it went from, you know, essentially me telling it in the third person, right, or, or looking back in time, to changing it around to having it come in Sadie's voice, in my older kid's voice, and in the present tense, um, which was a change that, that I learned about. And that was all based in reality. Then we've written a second, one, which comes, a second book, which comes out in a year, which was much harder because I made most of it up, mm-hmm. which is hard to do if you're, <laughs> if you're in our business. It's not something we're used to doing, making things, although I'm sure people would accuse us of it, but we don't often make things up for, new, for news purposes. So that was a much more challenging affair. And and so, um, and and did you once again? I mean, obviously, you have the raw materials of a children's story. You have two adorable little daughters. I mean, were they part of the making stuff up process? Yes, and and I so they have a, a classroom that's in in one of the rooms of our house that they spend a lot of time in, and they sort of pretend have class together, and they have for a few years. Uh, and so I kind of played reporter then too, and and watched them, and I, I actually gave them. Um, my phone and just turned it on and just recorded while they had they got to hold it and describe their classroom to me so that was that was helpful in just bringing some of the detail that maybe I wouldn't have seen just by looking you know you hear the things that are important to them uh, and so hopefully that that comes through in the second book Stephen Pastus, what children's books shaped you as a child do you did you have specific favorite children's books when you were growing up Oh, yeah. I mean, I learned, I, it wasn't really a children's book, but I learned to read from reading uh, Peanuts comic strips. That was the inspiration to to read, to learn to read. And then, you know, the Dr. Seuss books were huge. And then as I got older, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, 
how to eat fried worms. And you know what had the biggest influence on me? It's not a kid's book, but it sure changed the way I write, um, is Kurt Vonnegut, mm-hmm. uh, especially Breakfast of Champions, where he, he had uh, little drawings um, interspersed through there. And it's really how I wrote Timmy. Uh, you know, Timmy's for kids, and Breakfast of Champions is not. But Vonnegut's simple style of writing, um, boy, that, that, that was uh, earth-shattering to me. Yeah, and I, I would say that everything that you just said completely rings true. I mean, first of all, I think Timmy Failure is the kind of children's book that Kurt Vonnegut would write if he were to have written a children's book. And the other thing that it really jumped out at me is, you know, Peanuts really was this massive reimagining of the American child. It was, uh, I, I encountered it as a child also. And, and, you know, it was about the notion that children are often quite depressed, uh, that Christmas is not necessarily fun. Uh, that uh, children have irre- irreconcilable anxieties. Uh, I mean, it was it was one of the I think massive departures from the heretofore kind of sunny gilded notion of American childhood. You know, Charles Schultz said, "Well, you know, really, it's not oh, all that really? great a lot of the time, right?" Oh my gosh! You know, I I tell people in interviews, I say, you know, Charles Schultz changed comics in the way Brando changed acting. Like, before Brando, there's a style of acting, and after Brando, there's a style of acting, and he's the cutoff point. And he comes around in the early 50s, and coincidentally, it's the same time Schultz comes around. And if you look at comic strips pre-Schultz, you won't recognize them. They're, they're slapstick, they're silly, they have characters that indicate the punchline by staring at it, you with big, googly eyes. And <laughs> Peanuts was understated, and the tone was dry, and the... And the humor was often psychological and emotional, and uh, everything changed. And as a result, you won't find a cartoonist alive who does a syndicated comic strip who is not influenced by Peanuts. We were all influenced by Peanuts. We all came from that. Um, it, it was it it changed our world completely. Um, as we're getting to ra- getting ready to wrap up this segment, I'll ask you the same question, Jeff Cohen. Who are your influences, as they say in the commitments? Well, I I I feel a little bit out of my league here because uh, this is. <laughs> <laughs> a, I was a terrible reader as a kid, so I'd say a lot of my influences now are the books that I read to my kids, and they mm-hmm. happen to be pretty old books. My father-in-law actually is a is like a used children's book uh, seller by coincidence, and and we get all these great old books like Sid Hoff and um, William Steig, and but now we read uh, another Mo Willems. These are a lot of books that are. Actually, one thing that makes this book, a children's picture book, maybe a little different is that they're meant to be read aloud, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of fun. And and uh, finding books that we like to read together out loud as you know, kids at bedtime and, and parents, that's, those are the ones that I happen to like the best. All right. We're going to grab a great uh, break here, and first of all, uh, say goodbye and thank you very much to Ace Newsman Jeff Cohen and to Stefan Pastis, uh, and uh, obviously run out and get both of their books. That would be Eva and Sadie and The Worst Haircut Ever and Timmy Failure. Now look what you've done. When we come back, I'm going to be talking to Carly Lemire and Victoria Ford-Smith a little bit more about the nature of children's literature, the changes, the books that uh, people try to ban, the books that children really do want to read. They are often, of course, the same books. All right, we are back. We're talking about children's literature. It's Children's Books Week, Book Week, 
uh, we invite you to call in with your tales of, of the books that ignited your imagination or the imaginations of your children. Give us a call, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I'm talking here uh, with two experts in the field. We'll, we'll, we will be talking about content, about issues of diversity uh, in children's books, which continue to be uh, issues even in these enlightened times. Um, we, we'd love to hear from you, though, 860-275-7266. Victoria Ford Smith, an assistant professor of English, at the University of Connecticut, specializing in children's literature. might be worth a moment just talking about the emergence of this even as a thing. Um, in Even preparing for the show, I actually came across the name of Caroline Hewins, uh, a librarian here in Hartford, Connecticut, and apparently one of the first librarians in the later 19th century to really kind of recognize children's literature as a thing that could be coalesced and collected and exhibited in a children's room of a public library. And, and I got the feeling doing a little bit more reading about her and, and, and back from her, that that really is the, around the time that there's some kind of acknowledgement in, in Anglo-American society that there's a thing, as opposed to the individual book here and the individual book there, that there's a thing called children's literature that you can talk about collectively. Is, is that sort of uh, the right time window? I think the answer to when children's literature began will vary according to as many people as mm. you ask. Um, a, a big date for um, studying children's literature is 1744, actually, which is a lot earlier, because mm. um, that's when Newbery started publishing children's books, uh, the little pretty pocketbook. And it's also a moment, and his, his motto was instruction and delight. So this idea that children's literature isn't just meant to teach us something, but is meant to entertain us or entertain children. Uh, so that's the kind of the date that a lot of people work with. But you can trace it, you know, Centuries before that to fairy tales and oral literature, you can trace it forward. I like to date it from the mid-19th century because that's what – when um, Lewis Carroll publishes Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, they call this the golden age of children's lit. And you have George MacDonald and Robert Louis Stevenson at the end of the century. So a lot of the, the texts that we consider a little more can- canonical actually were published then. But when you think about it that way, when you think about it as going back to Grimm, uh, and when you think about um, all the stops along the way, really one of the tensions that we're going to be talking about here always exists. You look at the work, work of Bruno Bettelheim, the uses of enchantment. He, he says, really, fairy tales are incredibly dark. And before Disney gets a hold of them and, and scrubs them free of their horror and their blood and their uncertainty and their potential for death, they contain all this transgressive dark material, which, Bettelheim argues, children really need to be able to explore. What if my mother died and my father married somebody who didn't like me? That That's a basic childhood anxiety. And, and Bettelheim argues, you're nodding here, that, that maybe it makes sense to be able to look at that in a fairly, in a safer context than actually having to live through it. Now, I think the dark material is really important in children's literature. I'm glad that it's sticking around even if people challenge it all the time. I think children are vulnerable and scared, and uh, they often don't get to make any of their own decisions. And when you give them a book that reflects those experiences, it's great. That's why I really love Roald Dahl, uh, because, I mean, adults often really hate his books because they're gross and they're scary. Uh, But they're books where children are really powerful and adults are ridiculous and ugly and stupid. Uh, And so if you are the daughter of parents who are illiterate and are trying to keep you down, then you can have kinetic powers and telekinetic powers and, you know, take over the world if you're Matilda. So I I think that material is actually really important. Yeah. And so, um, uh, Carly uh, Lemire, as a librarian, you're obviously in the position of helping children pick out books, but the books also have to be relatively satisfactory to the parents of those children. And and so children are, they're attracted to Roald Dahl, where... 
really, you know, bad, bad things happen. Um, and so I don't know. How do you thread that needle? I mean, obviously, you don't want to give a kid a book that's going to scare the kid. No. Um, since I am in a public as opposed to a school, I feel like there's more free choice in that regard. Mm. Um, I order as many different types of books, different genres, different um, authors as I can and allow people to make those choices and have those experiences. And I also think it's funny, um, the idea of challenging a book when you could take that book with your child and actually have a conversation as to how and why we don't agree with this. Well, there's, it seems to me, and you, you can enlarge upon this, but there's sort of two kinds of books that get challenged. One of them is the kind of the book with the sort of seriously dark or uh, uh, frankly sexual content, uh, Judy Bloom kinds of books uh, that, that in, in a very serious way try to examine real issues for, for children of, of various different ages. Those kinds of books get challenged or, or books that once again in a fairly serious context have transgressive language or whatever. And then there's the Captain Underpants books which are about ridiculous and gross things or, or things that children really like to talk and think about that their parents get a little tired of listening to them talk and think about. So why do we need another book about this? And I, I've heard and read somewhere that actually Captain Underpants is the most challenged children's book or, or one of them anyway. I've seen that. I, once again, I've never had a challenge in my library, uh-huh. but definitely people are opposed to the idea of disgusting or um, things that happen that they don't agree with. And I think... <laughs> I'm sorry. I think um, – Well, if you, yeah. just to go from there to there, – so there's that. And then, then there are these other books where an author like Judy Bloom, let's say, or Robert Cormier has made an estimation about what a child can handle that might be radically different, kind of similar to what uh, Stefan Pastis was just saying, radically different from, say, what the world of parents have decided that a child can handle. And so I, once again, is, is that – as a librarian, is that something that you, you have to sort of then kind of straighten out or, or make a decision about or help a kid make a decision about? Oh, we do. Um, parents do come in and ask for recommendations, and I try to tell them to pick as many different um, types of books as they possibly can, and that let the child really drive what it is that is interested in them. I mean, thinking, like you were saying, the Captain Underpants, if they're reading and it's making them laugh and they're enjoying it, then power to them. They're reading, so – and, you know, once again, some of what we're talking about right now is um, uh, an age-old question. I mean, even that whole idea of the, the child as kind of a screw-up, you know? I mean, on the one hand, there are there were, are these Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm kind of models of, you know, high-functioning children in, you know, basically good and wholesome environments. But even, you know, I mentioned uh, as a child, this is going to point to how incredibly old I am. But I did read the Penrod and Sam books, uh, which were by Booth talking. And Penrod's a screw up. You know, he's not he's not a model kid by any stretch of the imagination. And I found something very comforting about the fact that Penrod didn't seem any better equipped to live life than than I was. Uh, and, and so I would assume, uh, Victoria Fort Smith, that this is, you know, this is something that goes on and on and on as a theme through children's lit. Uh, I definitely think so. I mean, even I mean, if we're taking like the canonical children's book, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, she messes up everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, she tries to recite poems and they come out all wrong. She insults mice um, by talking about her dog and cat. Uh, so this idea that children make mistakes and that a mistake can be funny or can be um, remedied or it's just part of how you steer through life. That's That's something that's been around forever. And it goes, I mean, even something like where the wild things are. Max is a terrible kid at the mm-hmm. beginning of that of that picture book. Uh, and it's something that I think 
is it's helpful for kids to see themselves reflected in that way. And Sendak went on to um, really explore kind of strange imagery, imagery that, you know, whether, whether it's in the night ki- kitchen or specifically outside over there, which is a really weird book. Uh, <laughs> and, and you almost get the feeling that Sendak, in, in exploring these strange disconnected images that are somewhat ghoulish in Outside Over There, is having a very direct conversation with children and completely bypassing adults, saying, this dreamlike thing will make sense to you. Your parents will never get it. Well, and it's funny because when he talked about how he wrote children's books, um, he didn't, at least he claimed that he didn't think about writing for children, which which came up earlier in the show. Uh, There's this moment that he talks about, oh, a woman came up to me at the store and said, oh, you're the kitty book man. I wanted to punch her. Uh, (laughs) There's this idea that for him, being a kitty book man means being sunshine and butterflies. And he wants to be somebody who's doing something more serious for kids. Uh, He thinks it's really important to tell children the truth. He said that many times um, before he passed away. So these are books where he's thinking, you know, I want to reflect the experiences of what it's actually like to be a child and how scary that can be. Right. I'd forgotten that. But he gave a couple of talks where he almost sort of described parents as the enemy, you know, that, that he was he really wanted to make his bargain exclusively. Although he didn't want to be a kiddie book writer, he also didn't really think that, that adult, adults had any idea uh, of the kind of dialogue that he was having with their children. And, and I think it's interesting how often parents are the enemy in children's literature, everything from evil stepmothers to, like, Doll, which we've already, who we've already mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, Edward Lear, his limericks uh, are all about the, the mean they who are trying to make you follow the rules. Uh, so I, I think that it, children's literature is a place where you can be mean to parents or independent from parents, and parents are the bad guy. Uh, let's grab a call or two. Our number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Here's Brock in Torrington. Hi, Brock. Hey, Colin. Uh, I agree with you about Penrod, by the way. I read Penrod as a kid and loved it. And, um, talk about an antisocial kid. I mean, it was a lot of fun to read. Yeah. Uh, topic I wanted to pick up on, I'm a retired uh, high school and junior high teacher, depending on which decade we're talking. And seem to me a lot of the reading lists uh, for uh, fiction in uh, English syllabuses had a, a sort of an odd cap to them. First of all, uh, a lot of it seemed to be grounded in the, uh, the era of when the teaching staff was young rather than something more current. But at the same time, it didn't go past that much. And uh, stuff I read as a kid that were favorite books of my my father, for example, things like Otto and the Silver Hand or, you know, uh, The Secret Garden, stuff like this, I mean, real Victorian stuff, uh, totally went by the board. And when you did get more recent stuff pitched to the age of the kids, a lot of it, didn't a lot of it was pretty good storytelling, but not very good writing. Uh, I'm thinking of S. E. Hinton, for example, and people like that just didn't do it for me in terms of writing style. All right, so and, um, um, let's let's try to tackle. Uh, you're opening up a whole bunch of different cans of worms, so let's sort of try to tackle a few of them. So, um, Carly Lemire, it, you know, uh, yeah, he's talking about S. E. Hinton, I think, there and the Outsiders and all that kind of stuff. But um, he makes an interesting point, which is that. Um, 
the the things that get assigned in school, the things that wind up on reading lists, summer reading lists, and stuff like that. Tend, I think he's he's right that they often are the books of the teacher's childhood. Uh, and whereas I, I would assume you're the gateway more for the books that were written in the last three or four years, and probably written in the vernacular and sensibilities of the children who are going to be reading them. Is that fair to say? Oh, very fair to say. Um, even now, we do have a summer reading list, but they have they've come a long way. They've updated it now. There is a Connecticut Award, a Nutmeg Award. That um, parent, that librarians and children um, all participate in, and they're modern tales. They have to be the books have to be written within the past five years. So um, there are more modern choices, I find, especially in the summer reading. Um, are there particular authors right now, uh, contemporary authors, authors publishing all the time? Well, we, we, we've already established that Stephen Pastis is, and the Timmy Failure books are books that you like. Are, are there books that you're kind of in love with these days, uh, and specific reasons for loving them? Um, right now, big, and once again, every community is different um, according to what their kids are reading. But Rick Riordan with all of the uh, Greek mythology mm-hmm. is huge right now. Kids are loving it. Um, That's the uh, Percy... Percy Jackson, yeah. the Lightning Thief series. He's expanded that to other series as well as, you know, the Die of the Wimpy Kid. That's big, too. Um, the Big Nate books as well. That's another that has come from a cartoon, mm-hmm. a cartoonist. So anything with drawing and whatnot. All right, we're going to grab a great break here. When we come back, one of the things I do want to talk a little bit about is the issue of diversity, uh, both gender diversity and and obviously uh, other kinds of racial and ethnic diversity in children's literature. We'd love to get your phone calls to 860-275-7266. Recommendations, criticisms, questions, we'll take them all. 860-275-7266. Today I read a book. It was contagious. 70 pages. There were pictures here and there, so it wasn't hard to bear. The day I read a book, it's a shame I don't recall the name of the book. All right, how about this one? Waiting for Godot, but the two tramps are kittens. No? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Anna Novak and Tess Aronson. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Robert Louis Stevenson. For show pages, articles, and videos based on the Faith Middleton Show staff's children's book, The Little Cricket Who Fell Into a Bottle of 2010 Chateau Lafitte Rothschild and Died a Sublime Death, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, Philippe Petit, the man on wire, visits our show. And now... Back to Colin. All right. We're talking about children's literature. We welcome your phone calls, 860-275-7266. With us in studio, Victoria Ford-Smith, an assistant professor of English at the University of Connecticut who specializes in children's literature. Uh, Carly Lemire, the youth services librarian at the Blackstone Library in Brantford. I want to talk um, specifically about the issue of diversity. Um, I raised uh, a Mexican, uh, an ethnically Mexican child. Uh, and one of the things that we started to do is think, well, we should find some books for little kids that have Latino characters in them. And this was, uh, my son was born in 1989. So this is basically the 1990s. Well, we really had to travel far afield. <laughs> and we found a book about Diego Rivera. We just found a book called Gilberto and the Wind. We found found a few things. But, um, and, and, and so Victoria Ford Smith, I mean, over the scope of this, and it isn't just a problem about Latinos. It isn't just a problem about African-Americans. Uh, I saw one study that looked at children's literature from 1900 to 2000 and found incredible gender disparities, too, that, that the protagonists were, you know, 
three or four to one times as likely to be male protagonists. So is there some general things you can say about this whole question of diversity in children's literature? Sure. I think this is a problem that unfortunately, like you said, has been around forever um, since the beginning of children's literature. Uh, And it's something that I think is getting a lot of really great attention right now. There was recently uh, an online campaign called We Need Diverse Books that was sparked by um, a book convention where the luminaries and children's literature panel was all white men. Uh, So it's a problem both in who we're recognizing as writing and illustrating for children and what kinds of characters are represented in those books. And there are some great children's books out there right now that um, feature a, a diverse array of characters. Um, I love Louise Erdrich's The Birch Bark House. Um, I love Jean Luen Yang's American Born Chinese, which is a graphic novel. Uh, but there's still this really huge disparity. And I, I think it's important to think about it not only as far as diversity in race and ethnicity, but also sexuality and socioeconomic class and gender. Uh, so unfortunately, the, the big picture is that it's a problem that has not gone away. But in some of what you're just talking about, too, uh, is a whole other set of potential fights involving school boards and stuff like that. Because the minute you start getting gay characters or uh, transgendered characters, there's going to be some people who push back against that, right? And probably already have been. Oh, yeah, they definitely have. Uh, one of the other most frequently banned books is Sherman Alexie's The Absolutely T- True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, which is a really great book. And it has the, the art and text together. It, kids love reading that that book. Um, but it has issues of, it, it, he talks about masturbation, it has issues of domestic abuse and alcoholism. Uh, but the, the, I think, you know, people are going to push, but we just have to push back. Uh, Sherman Alexie himself has written about censorship and the idea that when you take those books off the shelves, you're not just taking off certain, taking away offensive material or erasing entire stories of people who live those stories. It's a, it's a privileged idea to think that you're protecting children from, um, experiencing certain types of identity or certain experiences because you're assuming that those children aren't already familiar with it. Um, Carly Lemire, how does the issue of issues, uh, many issues of diversity, how do they play out for you as a children's librarian? I mean, obviously, this is something that you and other children's librarians are probably in dialogue about uh, a lot. So I assume it influences choices even in terms of what you stock. Definitely. And once again, that falls back on your community and who's living in your community. But I do think the YA um, field is blowing up now with um, different genders, different um, voices that haven't been heard before. I think it's harder to find in the picture books, I find. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And kids do want to find themselves in those books, especially when it's so graphically in their face that they want to see someone that looks like them and compared to reading a, a chapter book. Yeah, no, I, that absolutely was our experience as parents yes. um, finding the picture books uh, that had the Latino characters. I mean, really, we we owned two of them. <laughs> um, you know, and obviously, it, it's certainly not the case that a child should only read books about him or herself or books in which he recognizes, you know, all of the characters. But you do want to have some, and you probably want to have more than two. Exactly, and I think that allows them to understand different points of view and to have experiences or see what a different character would do in a situation that they would never experience. So, You know, you, you mentioned YA, uh, that's young adult, and uh, the, when we first started having a conversation about, like, what, what, what we talk about on this show, um, one of the things that... <laughs> <laughs> that I've been amused by, and I track it, track it back to the Harry Potter books. It may go back further than that. Is the number of adults who, absent the the, the, the excuse or reason or thrall of any child, are still reading these books? And I mean, the books of you know whether it's The Hunger Games uh, or, or Harry Potter. I'm sure you could uh, rattle off ten others. I mean, you probably have some people who are looking for these books, but not for their kids. 
Correct. They come to um, check them out themselves. And a wonderful thing about that is the bridge where reading together doesn't have to stop mm-hmm. when uh, they're so young. You could continue to read together, share on those books with your high school or share on those books with your middle schooler and have those conversations. So it's it's really nice to see, actually. Yeah, it is nice to see. Although, actually, we had the experience of at a certain point through the Harry Potter series, my son lost interest. It was, the books were getting long and complicated and reticulated, and we continued to read them, of course. But uh, he said, nah, that's enough. <laughs> I don't need those books anymore. Let me grab a couple of calls here. And um, Although, while we're on that subject, uh, Victoria Ford-Smith, maybe you want to say something, too, about the evolution of the young adult genre. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, there were some books even 10, 15, 20 years ago, Robert Cormier again comes to mind, or Judy Bloom, where they were beginning to tackle some of these themes. But it really has, as Carly said, exploded now, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, most people trace the beginning of YA back to The Outsiders, which, is already, um, which has already been mentioned. Um, but what's coming up now, which I think is really interesting, is how the lines between children's young adult and adult literature have become increasingly blurry. Now there's a new category called new adult fiction, which I know a little bit less about. And so we keep kind of slicing, like splitting hairs. Uh, and how these genres that were defined by who they're written for, that those definitions no longer apply. So something like The Book Thief has been read by all three of those audiences, children, young adults, and adult readers. And some books published for adults, like uh, Mark Haddon's The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, has actually migrated to young adult literature shelves. And so I, I think it's actually interesting and a good thing and not a problem. Um, Barnes & Noble used to have a sign in their young adult literature section that said, uh, it's okay, you don't have to have a child to buy these books. <laughs> we won't judge you when you get to the cashier. So I think it's an, a really interesting development. Yeah, I mean, back to Timmy Failure. I'm totally a Timmy Failure audience member now, and there's no you know, demographic reason why I should be. Let me grab a call or two here. Here's Ann in Stanford. Hi, Ann. Hello, how are you? Good. Um, I would just like to make a recommended, sorry, recommendation for the older child, mm-hmm. starting about maybe 12 years old and up to college. Uh, it's Jim Butcher's Codex Alera. It's a six-book series, and it's got brains versus brawn, magic, strong male and female leads, politics, and it's easily rereadable again. I've read it twice. Codex Alera. All right. I think they were both shaking their heads. Does this ring a bell at all? I don't know that one, but I wrote it down. All right. Well, I mean, but that actually goes to a point, which is that, I mean, I think another change that has happened, and and I I hope I'm not overstating the case, but, you know, my childhood took place in like the 60s and 70s and stuff like that. And really, I mean, I think a children's librarian could pretty come come pretty close in those days to knowing – you know, every significant player within the world of children's books. You know, there just weren't that many. Um, and I, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of titles get uh, published now, uh, Carly Lemire, but there's just no way that you could know about everything now. It's so impossible. It's so hard to keep up. You have to follow reviews, blogs. People are now print self-publishing ebooks. It's just, it's hard to keep up with. Well, you know, to that point about ebooks too, I mean, one of the things that uh, I... Uh, was even noticing getting ready for that is I hadn't really thought about this, but children's picture books are easily convertible to YouTube. Um, so we, you know, and Patrick was directing me uh, to the Patrick Scahill, who was a former producer here, these books by a, a guy who I'm, I'm blocking his name right now, but he's he writes kind of obsessively about animals who, whose hats are stolen. There are two different books about stolen hats. Um, Klassen? 
Yeah, John Cla- John Classen, yeah. But I could see on YouTube each of his books, you know, just sort of with the pages turned. I mean, these books are now convertible to lots of different. And is is do children read ebooks? Do children read books on Kindles and stuff like that? I don't think it's as many, especially with the graphic. Um, people do tend to still go towards books, but I'm all for it. The more accessible they become mm-hmm. for everyone to get them and experience and read with their children, why not? Yeah. Every format. Yeah, the, the classroom books are interesting too. They go back to the thing that we were talking about before. They are they they are obviously pitched at a very young audience. It's it is a bear uh, or a uh, a bear who has lost his hat and is very anxious about it and de- and depressed about it. But I mean, ultimately, the kind of justice that he exacts is terrible and swift. And I have to say, reading that, it was a little bit of a shock to me because, I mean, I, I, I thought I was reading a certain kind of book, you know, a book that was pitched at maybe a five-year-old uh, or something like that, except that, I don't know, should we do the spoiler? Or? I'll let you do the spoiler. All right. Well, the, I mean, the bear finds, realizes the bunny has his hat and he basically eats the bunny. I mean, off camera, he eats the bunny. Um, and then it goes, bunny? What bunny? There's no bunny here. Um, and so, but once again, I guess that is... You're dealing in a very real way with children's anxieties about stuff. Yeah, I mean, the eat or be eaten uh, question has been in children's lit forever since Hansel and Gretel. Uh, but I do think there's a type of humorous, exaggerated violence. That's kind of a scary phrase to use. It sounds controversial. <laughs> um, but that that works really well in children's lit. Um, and that will be understood as shocking to an adult reader who can also enjoy a book like Classen's, but will be considered hilarious by a child reader. Uh, I'm thinking of Mo Willems. Um, the we are we are in a book is my favorite Mo Willems book. It's like a book about modernism. It's really awesome. And Elephant has this existential crisis about the end of his life, but it's really <laughs> funny, and mm-hmm. so it can be understood on both levels. And and I mean the the classic books. The other one, uh, which is also about a missing hat, but it's about a small fish who steals a hat from a big fish. And uh, I mean the other lesson is don't take people's stuff. You know, I mean it does drive home a kind of basic. I mean, don't take people's stuff or, in fact, you know, be prepared to live with the consequences. And the consequences are like, you know, something out of The Sopranos, basically. (laughs) Um, All right. This has been a fascinating conversation. We really enjoyed uh, having uh, both of you here, plus our other guests. Thanks to Seven Pastis, uh, his book, Timmy Failure. Now, Look What You've Done is great. Uh, And, of course, all of you must order Jeff Cohen's book, Eva and Sadie and the Worst Haircut Ever. Thanks to Carly Lemire, Youth Services Librarian at Blackstone Library in Branford, Victoria Ford Smith, Assistant Professor of English at the University of Connecticut, specialized in children's literature. We'll be back tomorrow with, well, you could do a good kid's book about him. Uh, We'll be with Philippe Petit, the man who made the walk between the two towers on a wire. I'm Kion Wolf. All right, how about this graveyard A disease? No. Okay, uh, some kittens can fly. No. Mm. Hey, kid, have a cigar. Mm. Huh? No. Oh.